Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Bill Benenson. Bill, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks for asking me to join you. Glad to have you here. And I'm going to read a bit about your bio, or it's about actually about Benenson Productions, and then say what brought me to you. So from your page, founded in 1970, Benenson Productions uses documentary and narrative film formats to examine the human condition through the prisms of culture, science, and the environment. Each film provides the viewer with a greater understanding of an issue or a people previously underrepresented or misunderstood, providing a platform to take action and engage in solutions. So you've traveled to the impenetrably dense Honduran jungle to find hidden cities, the plains of Tanzania. This is what we're going to talk about to chronicle the lives of Africa's last remaining hunter-gatherer tribe, the Hadza, and everywhere in between. And I'm going to jump from there to why the regular listeners of this podcast and readers of my blog will have seen Hadza popping up a bit. But if it, longtime listeners and readers will know that I guess it really started with learning about the Hawaiians and in this book, The Once and Future World, that uh, I read that talked about, among other things, how the Hawaiians lived for hundreds, maybe a thousand years after, the, after they stopped trading with the Polynesians and before Captain Cook arrived there. And they had a measure of sustainability. They lived without overusing the land. And that led me to learn about the San Bushmen in Southern Africa who live in the Kalahari Desert. And there's a whole lot more than I can share here, but that they, they're, they've lived there for something on the order of 100,000 years, maybe 200,000 years or more. And we don't know much about how things were before, but we do know that they were there. And then I recently learned about the Hadza. And actually, a friend of mine was in Tanzania and had, has visited them in person. And you did a documentary on them, which was a wonderful documentary. And you lived with them. And it sounds as if you were compelled to do this document. I mean, you've done documentaries going back to the 70s. And it's a wonderful series that I've just barely started Scratch the Surface on. And I'd love to learn two broad things. One, about the Hadza, because you've been there. And right. two, about your personal, to decide to go and do it, it sounds like there was a lot driving you there. So the, you, just before we recorded, you said you started, you were recording there about 10 years ago. I wonder where to start. I propose starting with about you and your, what led you to them, how you found out about them and how you took it upon yourself to record something about them. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. And thank you very much for asking me to join you and also for watching our film, The Hadza, Last of the First. And I got to them in a, I would say, both common and circuitous path. So that is the common part, in effect, is, as many others, I went with my family and another family on safari to Tanzania, to northern Tanzania, in the year 2004. And our safari guide said to us after we got there, would you like to take a slight diversion off of the standard safari route into and through the Serengeti and meet kind of Bushman tribe called the Hadza, who live up in highlands above Lake Iasi, which is just below the Nagora crater and on the edge of the Serengeti Plain. And we said, sure, we'd love to do that. And so we went up and met the Hads. It was an entire day's basically like a jeep ride up into the mountains off of the plains around Lake Iasi. And um, we met this remarkable tribe, the Hadza, who are in many ways, unique in that, for example, their language is an isolate. There is no other language exactly or even closely related to it, even though it is a click language like the San Bushman. Mm -hmm. But they are unique in both their location, which is much farther north than any other Bushmen that I know of. They're there at the northern end of that range. They are in the Old Divide Gorge area, 
which is often considered the cradle of Homo sapiens, of our ancestors, where our first (laughs) footprints are not really engraved, but are in a fossilized form in quite nearby to where the Hadza live now. And they're three and a half million years old, at least. So that that humans have been, or human ancestors, Homo sapien ancestors, have been in this area a very long time. And we met with this tribe, as I said, and I was absolutely fascinated by them. But I didn't know how to make a film about them when we were there in 2004. And that I can continue explaining how we came up with the concept of being able to make a film about them. But initially, I was fascinated by what we saw in being with them for a day and a half, two days. But it eluded me, all of me, me and my family and everyone else I talked to about how to make the film initially. I am curious about that because it sounds like you're inspired as well. And you said fascinating. I would guess that you must have done a lot of research after the personal experience there. And you must have done a lot of work to get the people, the scholars on it that you did. And now you, if you were there in 2004, if I remember from the movie, the first that Westerners learned of them was about a century before that, 1915, if I remember right. That's right. They were very discovered, in quote, or found or had contact with almost much later, perhaps, than any other tribe or group, certainly in in East Africa. And they explained that by saying that we ran away. We didn't want to be in contact with this these new invaders or new visitors to their area. And they really eluded, they escaped from being in contact until a couple of German anthropologists, explorers, found them in about 1915, which was under, when we were there in 2004, under 100 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, time from when they were discovered. And they were elusive for a very long time, even though initially East Africa or Northern East Africa, what is now Kenya and Tanzania, was a German protectorate. It changed hand after World War I, I believe, and became an English colony, but that's getting off the mark right now. So what happened in between, yeah, between 04 and when you started recording? Was it research, connections, funding, figuring out the structure of it, learning about them? I didn't really, I did a lot of thinking and talking and reading about the Hadza between 2004 and 2010, but I I had absolutely no idea how I, how we, my wife and I and our team later could make a film about the Hatsu because clearly I was not an expert in no way after spending three part of three days out there with them, arriving, being with them, leaving, that hardly qualified me as an expert or even someone who had any inkling about how to make a film about them until 2010. And when my wife, Lori, read a review of a book called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, by Professor Richard Wrangham. And in that book, there were a lot of very relevant and also revelatory ideas that triggered my thinking, you know what, maybe there's a way to make a film about the Hadza 
in relation to Professor Rangham. And that is, he is a primatologist. He has worked with chimpanzees since the beginning of his academic career. And for example, he initially in about 1970 went out and joined Dr. Jane Goodall in Tanzania on the western edge of Tanzania, Lake Tanganyika, where Jane Goodall has her gambe, her chimpanzee preserve research area. And Richard was one of the first people who worked for her, who went out on the outer edges of the chimpanzee groups, not the ones around the camp that Jane lived in and worked out of, where the chimpanzees were quite, I don't know, docile, but they certainly were climatized or or humanized in the sense that they were very dependent on the handout of bananas, etc., from their human friends for the food that they liked so much. But when Richard and one or two other of her researchers went out to the very edge of where these wild chimpanzee groups lived, they noted, they found and observed um, and recorded that the chimpanzees could be very violent and uh, brutal and murderous and uh, territorial and battle other bands of chimpanzees in a way that had never been seen or recorded before and was the antithesis of what people thought chimpanzees were like. And that was revolutionary and also caused a lot of controversy for Jane Goodall when she published that paper. And she had a real schism with her mentor. But it turns out that Richard had spent three years there in Tanzania. Unbeknownst to me, he also spoke Swahili, had learned it there. And in his book, Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human, he noted that he had known of the Hadza out in more central, north central Tanzania. And his thesis is that it was by cooking by our early ancestors where we started to uniformly be able to in effect, make digestion a lot easier by eating food that had been cooked. So one aspect besides making food, meat, let's say, much more tasty, is when you cook it, you also are tenderizing it, making it really substantially, infinitely easier to digest. And Richard's thesis was that about 1.9 million years ago, when our predecessors started cooking, that there was, and this is backed up by the fossil record records, between 1.9 million years ago and 1.5 million years ago, there was a major morphological change in our skeletal structure, particularly, as I understand it, as a layman in our cranial capacity, which almost tripled. Now, that happened, Richard's thesis is, and other people agree with this, it's not just that he's out on a limb on this, is that the hungriest muscle or the hungriest organ in our bodies is our brain. 
And when you stop having to, for example, I've seen the gorillas in Rwanda chew on bamboo stalks, it can take you all day to get through, I guess, one stalk of bamboo. And also it takes your stomach, no doubt, as long or perhaps more to break it down. And that is really inefficient and gobbles up a tremendous amount of energy. Whereas if you cook meat, or I suppose if you cook bamboo, I don't know, (laughs) you actually really speed up and simplify our body's work on getting the nutritional value out of whatever food source you have. And that changed us from really being very ape-like into being what is close to, in many ways, anatomically, who we are today. That's a long answer for the introduction to, or the start of a long answer to the introduction about how I thought that I could make a film about the Hadza in relation to their making fire with fire sticks and how important fire is to them and how long uh, they have lived in the area, both linguistically and genetically, we've traced them at least to 50,000 years back in this area, their homeland, even though they are semi-nomadic now, they were more nomadic before Westerners came into their area. But for at least 50,000 years, it appears, they've been in this general area of the Northern Rift Valley. But So I see that the, and I remember him talking about that in the movie of the fire, and now I see that connection. Mm-hmm. So that closed the gap into giving you what the story would be or um, what you were looking for to cover, or did you go there and hope for the best into what coverage you get? I did hope for the best, but yeah, let me go on. I, I didn't do a very adequate job of connecting Richard and the Hadza in the film. So once I had read Richard's book, it occurred to me or felt to me like I can see a way to make a film about the Hadza because I'm not an anthropologist. I'm not really knowledgeable at all about the Hadza. It seems to me that Professor Rangham not only knows Tanzania, it's also in the book that he knew of the Hadza, but that he could relate both to an audience, basically, I think, to anyone, that the history of human evolution took place in this area and how fire, which we had seen was, I thought, critical to the Hadza's way of life, certainly I had been astounded at how they could make fire with these fire sticks, which are long, thin, almost like arrows with a blunt end that they roll in their hands in a wooden block, not even a block, like a stick. I actually have one of them right here I'm trying to find. But anyway, they remarkably make fire your Audience can't see it, but I think just yeah, see a stick with can see it here. It looks like where the fire. Um, I mean, in the movie, they they take these long sticks and they and they move their hands back and forth, which gets the smoke to start. Yeah, and it looks like that's the receiving end of those things, and it's been it burned through a couple times. Yeah, I was never able to roll that stick sufficiently uh, fast or with enough pressure to get even anything smoldering, but yeah. they, they can do it mind, within 30 seconds. 
Yeah, if you don't mind me interrupting, there's a scene that I found touching when one guy talks about how his father taught him how to make how to do it, mm-hmm. and it it felt like a paternal passed down thing. And then there's a scene where the the women are out with I forget what roots they were with, and the woman who was there says, "Do you cook? The, do you eat this here?" And they say, "No, we cook it back there." And they say, "We don't have fire." And I wondered if that was, do women not make the fire and men do make the fire? Because there, there is, it's a very egalitarian society, as I understand. Mm-hmm. But gender lines along hunting versus gathering. I've never seen or know of, and the women reported, that they don't make fire. Now, I think maybe if they had to, possibly they could. But I've never seen that. It's not terribly complicated if you've been trained in it. Uh, They also don't train the girls to go hunting. You might remember a scene in the film where a boy, probably a year and a half or two years old, is shooting a a mini bow and arrow uh, out. And then running out after it. Yeah, Running out after it. Some of that is is pretty amazing, but they do have distinct gender differentiations in what they do and don't do. But what I saw was that fire, which, as Richard pointed out in the film, there is no known culture, tribe, society on our earth now or reported in the past, who has ever lived without fire. That is, we humans are a product of our relationship with Prometheus or with fire. And it is such a fundamental leap or change. And in Richard's case, he really does say and has written the book, supporting his idea that it was the conquest or the utilization of fire that transformed us from the primates into our early Homo sapiens. And so I thought that Richard, who both had this thesis and also had lived in Tanzania for three years could be someone to help us both be an interlocutor or a man who could talk to the Hadza in or present the Hadza with us on camera in a way that would make sense and could be very interesting. And just by really what one might say absolute chance, which I don't think actually exists in some way, serendipity or luck or what I like to call invisible inevitability. He had a two-week period in February of 2011 when he could be free. He was in East Africa and he could join us to be out with the Hadza. So we coordinated our first of two shoots, or three actually, but two major ones, shoots in Tanzania with the Hadza in February of 2011. He was able to join us. He has a primate research uh, center in Western Uganda, and I believe he came down from Uganda, met us in northern Tanzania. And then afterwards, I think he went down to South Africa for a conference. So we were able to find him, have him be with us at a time when it worked for all of us. And that's in between when he's a a full professor at Harvard and uh, a dorm master. He and his wife are dorm masters, incredibly accomplished and wonderful human being. So we had that opportunity. And I saw that as the means in which it seemed possible that one could 
understand more about our human evolution and that he would be a person who could interact with the Hadza in a way that would make sense. And with his experience there, hopefully he would be comfortable with that and they could be comfortable with him. Actually, I didn't know that he spoke Swahili, which is the language that most of the Hadza, not the really elders who only speak Hadzin, their unique language, have, the Hadza have learned to speak Swahili, which is the lingua franca or the language of most of East Africa and all of Tanzania has united around Swahili. So Richard was also, as you saw in the film, able to speak with them in Swahili on and off. And certainly he was an amazing interface with them besides another professor who we had our second shoot with, Dr. Alyssa Crittenden. But we can talk about her later as I go on, if you want, and explain more about how we were able to work with the Hads and how this all evolved. Well, now I'm getting hungry to share about a couple scenes in it and, and to jump into the content of it, if that's okay with you. Because please, the, there were, the whole movie was moving and touching and informative. There were five scenes, one of which you brought up, that really hit me. And I'll list them and invite you to talk about any of them if or all of them. So one of them, this is the one that I've told many people before. I don't know why this, it, there's a story of some kids who've, they've, the school is two days walk away and these two kids are there and they walked the two days back on their own. Like they got hit at school and they didn't like it. So they decided to go home. They talked about digging water holes. They talked about stopping with some other Hadza tribes. And at the end of it, the person interviewing them, which may have been you, I'm not sure, says, did you worry about it? Like, how, was it, was that a big deal going two days? And he says, well, we walked it. But then at the very end, he says, it was easy. We're Hadza. And <laughs> it, I think of, there's all this talk in the, in the United States of helicopter parenting and kids can't do what they used to do. And I couldn't, if someone said to me, take a two day hike, I'd start thinking about all the equipment I have to get and so forth. And it was easy. We're Hadza. Okay. So that was one. Then there's one that when you look up Hadza, it, there's the getting the honey and that bird and that's incredible. So that was that's the second one. A third was the scene you described about the arrows and the kids, the voiceover, uh, the researcher says, by five years old, they're, they're catching small game, if I remember. That was a third scene. Then there's another where the, when the, I wrote Maasai, but it's not Maasai. It was the, the, Toga, the, Toga. the Toga tribe is the cattle is drinking this diminished water. And they're looking and they're trying to, it, it's just, apparently their culture doesn't, they're not vengeful. They're not angry or, but it looks like the person is struggling to say they're, this is the abuse or this is unfair or something like that, but they don't. So mm -hmm. there's that one. And then there's the map over the animation of the map showing their territory in 1940 and 2010. And it's getting so small. And I think a lot of people think someone has to help them. My first thought is when I see that, I think of that's where we see the territory getting encroached on, but the, it's happening everywhere else in the world. Yes, we want to help them, but we got to stop ourselves. Anyway, that's, those scenes were ones that you know, really stick with me more than a lot of other scenes in movies. Any, any of them or all of them you want to comment on? Sure, I'd be glad to. Do you want me <clears throat> to start with the first one about the little yeah. boys leaving the school? Yeah. I so think they were one. about nine and ten years old. And they had been brought to school by, by, they said, I think, a bus, but there, there are no buses up there. They were probably driven down in a Range Rover or something like that or a pickup truck. And they started school. On the first day, I think they said they were hit 
by a teacher because they couldn't read or whatever. They were talking because they didn't know they weren't supposed to talk. These are two really wonderful little kids, and they they didn't like being hit. And I think there are probably other things they didn't like also. But they decided, okay, we're out of here. This they, We're not going to do this. And they did walk back two days, which I would guess, even with them being hods, had to have been 15 to 20 miles away. I've made that drive, and it's taken, well, it takes anywhere from three to five hours in with a four-wheel drive, and usually you'll have a, um, a blown tire somewhere or this a stream you have to forge and you really have to slow down to do that. It, it's And it's steep uphill, mm-hmm. and the roads, as <laughs> if you want to call them a road, are really dirt paths that have had grooves maybe drilled in them by the vehicles that go up pretty rarely, but still they've been going up for years. And so those boys, their most remarkable comment is, nah, this is easy. How did you get back? We're hot, so we know either this area, we know how to live and survive on our own. There's nothing to it. And I think that is really... Very telling, and you're right in (laughs) noting that, sign of how comfortable they are in their environment, even if they're taken out of the immediate area, how well they know how to live in the outdoor world, and how easily they can pass from one place to another and do it seemingly without any problem. I don't think any of us, I wouldn't have any idea of what to have done. Not That's a poor example, but they are remarkable. By that age, by age 10, they're accomplished hunters, even if they don't go after big game. And they know which berries to eat. We have another scene in the film where the kids are with their mothers and relatives, women pulling berries off of the trees. They know how to survive on their own. Probably they wouldn't be asked to do that or put out there on their own before. But when they had to, they easily could do that. And they did it with no problem whatsoever that they noted to us. And I believe them. And the fact that it was they were leaving a school and in the West, I have, I have a lot of university degrees and I value education, but I can't help but think we should be learning from them, not us, like a couple thousand year old cult- culture going to 50 or more plus year old culture and saying, we'll teach you how to do it, seems to exhibit a bit of a lack of humility on our part, to say the least. I agree with that. I think you're very right about that. I felt in in talking about how to make the film that there was a lot to learn from the Hadza about their way of life, about our way of life on this planet and how we evolved. And one of my initial problems was that, and the solution was to be able to interview Richard Rangham up with the Hadza was I felt that he could give us insights into that relationship between how not only did we evolve theoretically from primates into homo sapiens, but that he had enough experience in living in the bush out in Tanzania, even further out than where the Hadza lived, that he could tell us about this interface between their culture and our own culture in a way that would be illuminating to their story for us to understand. And even though I didn't know Richard in advance, it turned out to be correct that he was a wonderful guide to explaining 
their way of life to us, which I felt that on my own, I had no ability to do that. Actually, in the interviews that we did with Richard, we had a second camera on me asking him questions. And it turned out to be absolutely unnecessary to have me asking the questions because his answers were much more interesting than me sitting back and and asking him questions, throwing them at him because the questions were irrelevant to his explanation about how the Hadza lived and how they had survived as they have for this extraordinary amount of time out in an environment that, as you were pointing out, we would not be able to function in or survive in at all on our own. And I wonder if I can jump to the scene where they are, the voiceover says that because of drought and neighboring tribes are planting onions and other crop and Mm -hmm. to bring cattle in that the water table is dropping, so they have to dig deeper wells. And someone from a neighboring tribe builds a trough, a, a place to put the water in for the cattle to drink the water. Mm-hmm. And then the, they're watching the cattle drink the water that's very hard for them to get. Mm-hmm. And they can't do anything. There's not, as far as I can tell, it's an, it looks like an affront, but they don't seem to have a front in their culture. If I wonder if you could expand on that. Yeah, I'd be glad to talk about that. So that was in the dry season in August. Also, there had been an extended drought. So besides it being the dry season, they were suffering from, I think, at least two or three years of uh, drought conditions. The only water that the Hadza had access to. The only substantial water was a deep they dug in the side of a mountain where they would go every day with buckets to collect water. And, well, throughout East Africa, but there's been a real expansion in the number of cattle that the Maasai and Maasai-related tribes. So you were right. This is a Maasai uh, sub-tribe, I think, the Toka. I just pronounced that wrong. Anyway, they're also called the Barabag. They had found or knew of the Hadza watering site, the well. And they had come up with their cattle into Hod's land. And they were, as you pointed out, <clears throat> building a trough and filling it up for the their cattle to drink from, which was both depleting the Hadza water supply and contaminating it. And the Hadza women who had gone to collect the water sat by with our other academic who in August, Dr. Alyssa Crittenden, had come with us to be with us while we filmed with them in August. She sat with her friends. Dr. Crittenden had spent two years out with the Hadza in 2004. Actually, ironically, the year that I went there with my family and friends. And she had been there doing her doctoral research. And she sat there and her friend told her that there was nothing they could do to stop the cattle from being fed or not fed, drinking from their water because they couldn't resist or they certainly the women weren't going to fight back. And the men had decided and learned that fighting them, the Datoga, would be dangerous and they would be far outnumbered. And there was 
they did get into confrontations with them. And we talked about that later in the film, ultimately. But it was a giant power imbalance. And the Hadza were unable to protect or to keep their water and water away from the cattle, which also came up in another scene. It it wasn't shot well enough, but their cattle were actually eating some of their grass huts. Oh, the huts, yeah. Up. You said that, yeah. Yeah, and so it really is a real problem. I think in the intervening years, there has been progress in keeping the Hadza land protected and for the Hadza to get more demarcated land rights for them than they had before, which is a whole separate topic that I can go into in an endless digression. I'm curious how it felt for you in the moment watching that happen. Was it, I mean, you're seeing it happen. Mm -hmm. Was it as, were you feeling what they were feeling? I mean, I'm not the same, but was it a heightened emotional situation? I would say that there's a sense of our team felt helpless because we weren't about ready to step in ourselves and say, get away. That didn't seem like anything we could do. We felt that in many ways, the Hads and their way of life is being threatened on so many different levels. That was a key conflict point. But for myself and our team, we didn't feel that we could in any way step in and shoo the cattle away. And uh, that, that seemed out of bounds literally, for us to do. We certainly talk to the people who are working to protect the Hadza and get their land rights further and better established. And this was part of our conversation with Dowdy Peterson, who has been working for it, practically lived out there his whole life to protect, and he has an organization called the Robo Trust that is dedicated to protecting the Hadza, and also to David Banks from the Nature Conservancy. They have been working with the Robo Trust and others to secure Hadza land, and they've been successful more than when we were out there to do that. So th- there have been efforts, but we didn't want to get into a personal confrontation ourselves at the time. It reminded me of when I was learning about the sun, and not that I know very much about them in the Kalahari Desert. I remember learning how they, despite being in the desert, they know how to live even through droughts, and that Westerners who lived among them saw that when it's a drought, they switch to a different diet, and when it's wet, they switch to a different diet, appropriate and that's how they've lived there for all that time. Mm-hmm. And then, so if they, why are they living in the desert though? And why, what it hit me as I learned about them through James Sussman, that they're under threat because the farms through irrigation and technology are able to get farther and farther into the desert. They're in the place that's left, like the places that are left of where people can live the way that they have lived for a long time. It seems like, you're saying that the Hadza are threatened, but the Hadza are like the last of everyone. We have a few places in Africa, maybe the upper Amazon, maybe a few places in Oceania where, I don't know how to put it, we haven't, what's the word, roughshod over them? Mm-hmm. And just put farms and cattle to where people can't hunt and gather anymore. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And The full title of our film is The Hadza, The Last of the First, and they are absolutely threatened. They are the last link in many ways, and you pointed out a a few other places where there are 
the remnants of uh, tribes that have existed in an indigenous uh, way of a primal way that have not been threatened or or overrun. I think they're all threatened by civilization, globalization. And the Hads, and I read recently, and this is even a lot more dire than when I was out there, we thought that they were maybe three or four hundred Hadza living up in the highlands, Mabulu highlands, that had not been really impacted fully as our group was by having their way of life be threatened to the degree that they couldn't live it any longer. Recently, I read that maybe there are 50 or less who are still living in what would be a more or less traditional way that our group had lived in when we were there in 2011. I I don't know if these statistics are right. There are a few groups, as you pointed out, in the upper Amazon that are probably untouched, uncontacted tribes. There is one group in the Indian Ocean who have fought to keep everyone away from them. It's a noose that has more than tightened around these tribes and groups. And the Hads are as threatened as any group in many direct and indirect, subtle and unsubtle ways that I think that our film was able to catch some of their relationship to their way of life that had survived in many ways, not fully intact, but at least in a way that they had the ability to physically live as they had, even though they had been forced into wearing Western clothes by the Tanzanian government in probably the 60s when they were embarrassed that Tanzanians were living in animal skins and they forced them into Western clothing. Yeah, there's there's something where the voiceover said there have been attempts over the years to modernize them that failed. And the word was to modernize them. And Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but hear to ruin them. And Mm -hmm. it's... Yeah, it just seems like if there's anything worth preserving and worth protecting and worth keeping our... I forgot, as I was preparing for this conversation, after I watched your movie, I did a blog post. The title was, if we're so wealthy, why do we keep taking the lands of the people who aren't? And I'm going to say, it. I don't know if I sound embittered or have a chip on my shoulder, but we just can't keep our mitts or we can't keep our system from encroaching everywhere. Was there concern on your part when you made it that people would want to go visit them? And we have this world tourist industry that tends to homogenize everything. And I can just see someone in Coca-Cola saying, oh, there's someone we got to get a Coca-Cola bottle within the reach of. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's a danger in when you make a documentary, bringing attention in a way that you don't really want to have. The answer to that partially is that the Tanzanian government have, there are two, several parts, but they're two major ones, I think. One is they have regulated access up to the Hadza, so only certain sanctified providers, ones that have been vetted, can go up into the Hadza Highlands. So it's not like uh, they'll take tour buses up there if the road had been improved, which 
it, it thankfully hasn't been that I know of. Uh, so on one part, the Hadza that we were with, who are up in the highlands there, were maybe 30 miles distance from the Hadza who live around Lake Yassi and are much more prevalent. So we were told maybe they were a thousand Hadza down at the edge of the lake and they are both culturally impoverished and they also live by having tourists come down or go out there and follow them hunting around the edge of the lake and marshes there. And they are the absorber of most of the tourists that go out there. There are only, that I know of, two or three tour guides, maybe more, but that's what I knew of, who were authorized to take anyone up into the Hadza highlands where we were filming and when we went up with them. And you also have to pay a substantial fee daily to be with them. So there was some regulation or restrictions on who could go up there. But that hasn't really totally stopped the incursions of the modern world on them. How about the other way? Has you, so it's been over 10 years since you interacted with them, since you first interacted with them. Has it changed your life? If so, how? Yeah, I think that it was a very profound experience for me, for my family meeting them, and for me to have had that opportunity to spend over a month with them throughout 2011. I feel like consciously or in my sense of our place on the earth and human evolution, it has had a profound effect. For example, you just brought up that there are still some uncontacted tribes in the northern Amazon basin region. And so my wife is the Lori Benenson is the chairman of the board of an organization called the Amazon Conservation Team. And one of their efforts, undertakings, is to keep the uncontacted people uncontacted. So we have gone from not just working in Africa and supporting efforts to protect the Hadza, but have also by extension, done or done what we can to help in the Amazon, not just the uncontacted tribe, but Amazon conservation team has been able to secure, and this is an astounding number, 90 million acres of land in Colombia, Brazil, and Suriname to be under the if you wish, ownership or the control of indigenous tribes there where it is demarcated by the governments of those countries as their protected area. And Amazon Conservation Team has worked to give, for example, satellite phones, cell phones, GPS units, to help really map out the areas that belong to the indigenous tribes and where possible to expand those areas of control. And so my life, both in the film work I've done and perhaps the philanthropy and anthropological work um, that I've done and my wife and I have done, has expanded to the Amazon and also to the Mesquitia jungle of Honduras, which I can get into separately. But we have taken the sense, the heart, the philosophy, the consciousness, I think, of what we learned and took away with the Hadza 
into our lives in a way that we had never done before we had the chance to both meet them and then to spend time with them. Did you also find a simplicity, a like needing less stuff, more connection with people or things like that, eating more basic? Yeah, I think that we came to see that plenty isn't really always the answer to what one needs, basically. I think we had a feeling that there's an incredible beauty to simplicity. I must say that the month or more that I spent up with them, I did not feel I was deprived of anything living out of a tent, albeit a pretty luxurious tent. It, I had a cot <laughs> and a shower. But those that experience and that sense of living a, a, a much more direct life was something that not only do I still treasure, but that I look back upon, we look back upon and think this was incredible richness for us in a way that you can't get <laughs> sometimes in the heart of luxury and plenty. Yeah, I want to, we've been talking about deprivation a bit, and I want to get to what, okay, if you don't have a lot of stuff, what do you have? And we're about an hour in, so maybe we'll close on this, but I hope you'll come back for another uh, the culture, the arts, the beads, the singing, the dancing, the cuisine. I, I imagine there's scenes where they, they kill the animals and they're roasting them within minutes. I'm guessing that this is a really good barbecue. It is. So, <laughs> Wild boar. Yeah. So and, I don't know, um, the cuisine, the dancing, the singing, the, the, the artwork, the fashion. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Their style or their... And the, the, I the think dolls and, yeah. the dolls and the certainly the beadwork that they do, I, I, there's an extraordinary richness. I, I feel it as a kind of inner warmth, a sense of being, having been with them was an extraordinary opportunity and experience that I took away, but that also it seemed very important to me at the time and still to have been able to record um, their way of life as best we could then when clearly they were in a lot of transitional powers, struggles, and that it would be a miracle to be able to have them survive in their traditional way of life, if they wish to, without it crumbling in the face of the territorial and economic and social pressures that are being forced on them in many ways that on the global economy and the global pressures, like even tourism, as you're pointing out, puts upon them. And it was a, an extraordinary opportunity to have another way of life for at least a short period of time that I treasure. Well, I can't thank you enough for bringing it to the world, to us, to me. And you have a, a large number of films that you've worked on, and I've only seen the one. I plan on seeing Dirt, the movie, next. You mentioned, I think before we hit record, Kiss the Ground. Correct. What's a third for me to watch be before I talk to you next Before next time? If you'd like, we have a film about a very primal topic, or it's called Fantastic Fungi, and it's about our friends' mushrooms and mycelium and their world. And these are both presently on Netflix, and you can see them or I think possibly through our website, BenensonProductions.com. But those two films are both important environmental films. 
and particularly Kiss the Ground, is a story about how regenerative farming can sequester carbon from the atmosphere with a slight change in agricultural practice or practices that might be able to both start to reverse the carbon cycle, but do it in a way that doesn't, and it's practically the unique way of taking carbon out of the atmosphere without limiting emissions, but actually, in effect, sucking it out and putting it back into the ground without just growing more trees, which would be wonderful, but that's complicated. And of course, we need humans, agriculture, crops (laughs) every day to survive. So if we can change agricultural practices to help put carbon back into the soil, it would be absolutely remarkable and can be part of reversing, hopefully, climate change. I could easily ask you questions for five, six, seven hours a day. I'm going to stop here. And I think I heard you say that you'd be back for a second time. So I'd be glad to. Bill Benenson, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Joshua. This has been a pleasure, Treat. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this, all of this. Thanks again. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.